Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is Nate Baglios and Charles Sprinkle of the speaker manufacturer Cali Audio. First, if you're one of those people that know they need to be on social media, but really don't want to do it themselves, then you're probably looking for a social media manager. And the meaning of a social media manager has really changed a lot in the last few years. For instance, the way it used to be is a typical manager would be a creative kid that had a lot of imagination, and usually only about 50% of them are college educated. That being said, there are more users than professionals, even though they may have had really great analytical and organizational and communication skills. Today, they need a lot more than that because they're expected to create content, help with business strategy, increase brand awareness, help with customer support and community management, and grow an audience. As a result, most of them have been to college, even though they all admit you don't have to go because all the skills can be learned outside of college, but most of them have studied something related to marketing, like journalism or communications or English or creative writing, maybe even graphic design. If you're going to hire a social media manager, there are some things you should know, though. They're going to need some resources from you. For instance, they're going to need a budget for video and photo editing. They need money for promotions. They need access to social software and market research tools if they're going to do the job you expect them to. And don't just think that you can get somebody that is a user and is on Facebook or is on TikTok or Instagram all the time. That doesn't cut it. They really need to love social and have an interest in the latest trends, plus be open to changes and understand audience behavior. They need copywriting skills and, more than anything, the basics of graphic design. If you're going to hire somebody, make sure that they can educate you on how social works and what they're going to be doing and set some clear guidelines on what you should expect. Now, in the future, this is all going to change yet again because video will soon be the go-to content and short video formats are going to be the thing because of short attention spans. So remember, the next best thing to doing it yourself is having a social media manager, but you have to get the right one, have to be qualified. Now you know a little bit about what to look for. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineers Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and so much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. It's bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. Now, here's something that's interesting. It appears that young bands and musicians are playing mostly Fenders and ignoring Gibson guitars pretty much all the time anymore. Why? Well, because now they equate Gibson with dad rock. Gibson just doesn't relate to younger players, while Fender does, and even Ibanez and ESP. What you're going to see most of the time are young players using Strats and Jazzmasters and even Mustangs. On the other hand, Gibson's latest signature models come from Gene Simmons and Slash, Adam Jones, Kirk Hammett, Dave Mustaine, and Tony Iommi, and they're all 50 years old and above. 
And not only that, Gibson has very classic designs, but if you're young, you think they look very dated. On the other hand, Fender caters to women and the LGBTQ community and really reaches out to younger players. Their endorsees include her, Hama Yakamoto, Billie Eilish, and Silent Siren, among many others. They're just cooler and hipper. So, it's pretty interesting that the type of guitar that you play can, in fact, influence the way people think about you. That being said, all it takes is one big hit by someone who's playing a Gibson, and that can change the perception really fast. My guests this week are Director of Marketing Nate Baglios and Director of Acoustics Charles Sprinkle of the speaker manufacturer Cali Audio. Both held executive positions at JBL before joining forces to start the company with some other co-founders. Cali Studio Monitors are built to offer the best possible value to its customers while providing high-performance products that fit any budget. During the interview, we talked about why designing professional loudspeakers is more rewarding than consumer speakers, the theory behind Cali's coaxial speaker configuration, why the science of loudspeaker design is so important, fine-tuning loudspeaker DSP, and much more. I spoke with Nate and Charles via Zoom from their offices in Burbank. Before you tell me about the company, I'd like to get a little bit of background from both of you on how you got to where you are today. So, Nate, let's start with you. Uh, <laughs> so, I am trained to be an opera singer and uh, didn't want to live out of, of a suitcase and didn't want to be around other opera singers 15 <laughs> hours a day. Um, and so went and got a real job. Uh, and a while ago, uh, JBL was hiring and they wanted somebody who knew uh, the mu- music products industry fairly well, but didn't know anything about speakers and had a decent pair of ears. And so I fit that bill pretty well. So started working for JBL, doing some product development, doing some marketing there. Um, which is how Charles and I met and the rest of uh, the group of us who are co-founders of Cali. Charles, how about you? I like to say I used to sell drugs in Bakersfield. I used to work in retail in the, uh, in a pharmacy in Bakersfield and uh, got uh, pulled into an audio hobby um, and then had an opportunity to go back to school. And I knew exactly what I wanted to do. So I went to become a, um, a loudspeaker designer engineer. That's what I wanted to do. I, when I was going to school, I met uh, uh, some people that were at Harmon and I got an internship and, you know, all this while I have a, a wife and a kid at home and um, working full time and going to school full time and, and getting through it. And uh, I went to work in uh, uh, Harmon corporate for a while. And then I got transferred to uh, Harmon consumer group and designed home loudspeakers and passive loudspeakers. I got pulled into multimedia speakers and television sets and slot machines voicing. Then I designed a waveguide for a uh, uh, product for JBL Pro and got pulled over in Pro and started doing studio monitors, uh, which has really been the, the, the joy of, 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 you know, kind of the, the high point of my career is being able to work in uh, Pro Audio designing studio monitors. Okay, l- let's talk about that for a second. So you've been through all the different well a lot of the variations of <laughs> yeah speaker design for different types of of a market and you felt that 
pro audio was something it was maybe the peak and i'm curious why that is it's really simple okay so so making consumer loudspeakers uh and of course i've always wanted to design neutral sounding hi-fi loudspeakers not just hi-fi as you know an exotic thing with great furniture but doesn't sound necessarily the best i really wanted to design neutral loudspeakers um um from you know day one um and design the best loudspeakers i could but at the end of the day when you design a consumer loudspeaker it goes into somebody's home and after a certain number of years that the loudspeaker is replaced or whatever and and it doesn't have any lasting impact but when you create studio monitors studio monitors is used by creative professionals engineers and artists to create music right and so the loudspeakers that you create as studio monitors if you're doing your job correctly have an impact on music that lasts forever right it, it, it's not something that's forgotten after five years it's, it, it has a lasting impact and and that's what's really uh, kind of special to me is to have the opportunity to support the the creation of music and content which speakers did you work on at JBL, the, the pro? Uh, the pro speakers, I, I designed the waveguide for the M2. That's how I got pulled over. And then I worked on the uh, three series, the LSR 305, 306, 308, uh, the seven series, 705, 708. Um, the, you know, I worked on uh, some portable PA programs. Uh, products, uh, Eon 615, I worked on Eon uh, 1 and Eon 1 Pro. Um, well, I have to say the LSR speaker line, that's one of the best sounding things that ever came out of JBL. Everything I've ever tried sounds really good and definitely works. Good job. Well, thank you. And uh, you need to hear the Callies. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, because we continue to learn. And uh, we continue to improve, and that's kind of one of the mindsets uh, here is continuous improvement. Um, how do we make it a little bit better? How do we make it a little bit better? I want to get to that in a second. Nate, you mentioned about not being very fond of being around opera singers all day <laughs> long. <laughs> Why is that? Oh, it just, it takes a big personality to walk onto a stage in front of 5,000 people without a microphone and uh, open your mouth and sing. Um, uh, so it's, there are opera singers in my life who I dearly love, um, and they are big personalities and being in a room full of big personalities can be really stressful. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot easier to tell people to buy speakers that Charles made. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I get it. Well, let's talk about Cali. So how did that start? So the group of us who had worked on a bunch of projects at JBL, we all knew each other. We liked each other. We were going out to lunch a lot um, just because it was fun. Um, and I think all of us had a shared passion for uh, the research and development side of product development, where it's, hey, it'd be cool if we could do this. Okay, well, let me think about that. And then Charles would come up to your desk and say, hey, come to the lab. I want to show you something. Um, <laughs> And uh, that iterative process and that, that creative space to explore how can we use the things that the engineering department is, is learning about and uh, 
inventing, uh, innovating um, to realize benefits for our end users. Um, that's really fun. Um, and all of us who started Cali, I think all of us would agree that was our favorite part of the job always. And we all really liked doing that together. So there were some management changes at Harman. Harman was bought by Samsung. The culture in the building shifted. And all of us really wanted to keep having fun the way that we were doing. And it seemed like it would be easier for us to do that on our own than versus under the, the corporate umbrella. Well, that makes a lot of sense especially a big corporation like that. Harman is already big, and then all of a sudden it's bigger with Samsung. So, yeah, that makes sense. You have a very interesting range of products. So there's two series of speaker lines that you have, and the one is definitely a lower end. The other one is definitely a higher end. And let's talk about the higher end one for a second because I find it very interesting in that they're coaxial speakers. And when I looked at this, I thought, you know, that makes so much sense because all the coaxials until now that I'm aware of anyway have been a woofer with the tweeter in the middle and you kind of went a different direction with the mid-range and a tweeter and a separate woofer. And I thought, yeah, it makes a lot more sense. So where did that come from? Okay, well, here's the thing. Um, <laughs> going back to study waveguides, right? And I was kind of the waveguide guy back in consumer and then working into pro for the uh, for the studio monitors and um, one of the things you know about waveguide is if the waveguide is moving you're going to have intermodulation distortion between your tweeter and the waveguide which is you know moving back and forth so you don't want it to move and that's what i saw as the the big weakness in a lot of these coaxial systems is that that cone was moving a lot and it was causing intermodulation distortion. I said, well, wait a second, all we have to do is put a woofer below this thing and cross it over 300 Hertz. And we can limit the excursion of this coaxial to less than a millimeter. And that will moderate, keep your intermodulation distortion below your threshold of perception. Um, so that's really where that came from is just keeping that mid range from moving keeping that cone from moving because it's a waveguide. The, the cone is a waveguide, so don't move the waveguide. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that's interesting is the crossover points because they make a lot of sense. One of the big problems, as you're more than aware of, I'm sure, is where the crossover points are chosen. And a lot of times they're in a very critical area, so you get a dip there and it doesn't sound, it never sounds quite right when you're mixing. And you have different crossover points. Yeah, right. We have a crossover point of 300 and crossover point of 3 kilohertz, and it keeps it out of critical vocal range. Now, of course, I will tell you that if you're doing a crossover right and you get your directivity right, you shouldn't have a dip, neither on axis nor off axis. You, your your um, your off axis timbre should match your on axis timbre. You shouldn't have frequency response anomalies. But, you know, as a part of having a crossover, you also have phase wraps. So, yeah, keeping it out of that vocal range is is a good thing. Which came first, the LP series or the IN series? Lone Pine came first. That was the first speakers that we did. It, it kind of causes me a little bit pain to, to think of one as low end and high end. Um, I have to tell you, as far as a two-way monitor, um, I'm pretty proud of the Lone Pine series. Um, yeah, sure, they don't have the advantages of coaxial speakers, but for a two-way loudspeaker, for those systems to have the low distortion that they do, we we achieved you 
know, I don't know if you've seen uh, the comparison of the motor structures that we have versus comparable um, competitive motor structures and reducing the distortion by 60 B, right? Uh, spending the money where it needed to be spent to, to get those improvements, but also using waveguides correctly, uh, doing the research on port tubes to prevent, you know, flow separation of the port tubes. There's a lot of science in those two-way loudspeakers to get them to perform as they do. I'm really quite proud of them. Uh, even though they're, you know, a two-way monitor that's non-coincident, they're really good monitors, you know, so much so that, you know, there's there's music that we like to demo here that was mixed and mastered on those LV6 monitors that are beautiful tracks out there in the wild. You certainly have great reviews. That says a lot. And not just good reviews, they're rave reviews that I've seen anyway. People are saying, how is it possible to make this something that's so good that's relatively inexpensive? We really have really a passion for diving into the details to get these things right. Um, so many of these things don't cost money. It's just design. It's just getting all the science right. There's no reason why it shouldn't be right. Um, diving into the details, looking after all the bits and pieces to, to get this, this, the entire system to perform up to a particular level. And it, and it really, you know, of course, for me, being able to be the systems and acoustics guy and be in charge of transducer development and all those other things allows me to kind of have that architecture view to get all the pieces to fall into place. Um, and then maybe that's that, you know, maybe that's a rare situation. I've always been kind of afforded that ability. And so I, I think I'm a little bit lucky in that regard. But yeah, it's it's just getting all the details of system integration correct that that makes that happen it's not magic how were the amplifiers chosen out of curiosity well uh <laughs> we we have two generations of amplifiers we had the the first generation of amplifier and it was basically designed to a price point you have constraints of how you're going to deliver a, a level of audio you know output and bandwidth and all these things and the first the, the first generation of product, we used the best system that we could. And it was, a, it was uh, amplifier and DSP all in one chip. Um, and it allowed us to achieve, you know, uh, neutral frequency response and good distortion response and all of these things, directivity, frequency response, distortion. But the drawback was being class D amplifier in that first generation, it had a little bit of idle noise, right? And so we chose it to be able to do the things we could to get the power output that we needed, to get the distortion we needed and all those other things. Um, but they have some drawbacks. And so we, when a new amplifier became available, uh, we chose that amplifier that gave us more DSP, more processing capability, better, a little bit better dynamic range, uh, lower residual noise floor. And so we're, we're basically selecting these things on on the metrics that we need and getting as much improvement as we can. And one more detail about that. When we do system design, uh, we do start with transducers. Our, our transducers are custom designed to produce a particular amount of SPL that causes them to have a particular amount of excursion that requires a particular amount of voltage. That voltage is used to select the amplifier to provide that much voltage 
so that everything in the system comes to its maximum output at the same time. It's how you get the maximum value out of the system is that everything's at full tilt boogie at the same time. Kind of hopefully I answered the question from a couple of different angles. Yeah. You know, you mentioned DSP and DSP has been somewhat of a godsend for loudspeakers in that now they can do things that they couldn't do before and in, in just in terms of frequency response and how they fit into a room. But that being said, and I don't know this, so that's why I'm asking, is the DSP that's used off the shelf or is this something that you have to fine tune? Well, the DSP, the hardware is off the shelf. Yeah. But then we have to tune that hardware. We have to develop the the filters that are used in, to tune our system. We have to tune the compressor limiter. We have to uh, get the entire system working correctly. Um, we have to go through power tests at least a couple of times because it blows up. And <laughs> you know, and, and as we get the everything to come together, uh, yeah, there's a lot of tuning and fine tuning involved, uh, but the the hardware is already developed. Um, that hardware can be different, um, you know, on, on uh, entry level systems, it could be simply using bi-quads uh, with compressor limiter and higher end systems. You can start to use FIR filters and uh, some more um, elaborate uh, dynamics processing. Well, let's talk about the subwoofer for a second. There's a couple of things that jumped out at me. One is the fact that you offered it because sometimes it seems like it's pulling teeth from a manufacturer and then it almost seems like uh, something that's kind of tacked on and not really engineered. But this looks like it was very thoroughly engineered to go with monitors. True? Uh, and we're talking about the WS-12. Yes. Okay. It's the only uh, subwoofer that It's the only subwoofer we currently exist. Yeah, yeah, okay, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so... That subwoofer is designed to be able to be dual purpose. And, and Brian, I'm going to defer to Nate to talk about, because I really think it's a cool thing as far as the purposes it was developed for. Yeah. Charles was really intuitive when we were talking about doing a subwoofer. I was, to be frank, I was surprised by the demand for a Cali subwoofer. And we had it planned from the start. We wanted to do a sub. It took a little bit longer than some of the other systems took. I was not expecting some of our end users, uh, some of the larger studios, especially they've got budget for days. Um, they can go out and buy a $2,000 subwoofer with a, with a, a name with some longer legs on it, um, than Cali audio, but they really want a Cali audio subwoofer if they're, if they're getting Cali audio speakers, which surprised me a little bit. And then Charles pointed out, you know, there is not really a subwoofer on the market that is made to do five one. You've got plenty of subwoofers that are made to to pair with a stereo system of speakers, but a dedicated studio dot one subwoofer. There's sort of a dearth for that, and you can't really get in the door for under ten thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So a speaker that could do that dot one in a five one system with our speakers um, presented a lot of value. To be able to do that dot one with a system of IN eights or LP eights means you have a really powerful sub. Um, and from my days working in portable PA speakers, I knew a couple things about big ass subs. (laughs) Um, the first of which was that a lot of studios were putting PA subwoofers behind the console because a lot of people working in bass heavy formats, EDM and hip hop 
needed to feel the bass. It wasn't even an issue of what's happening auditorily. It was an issue of what's happening uh, physically. They needed to know that the low end was hitting, physically hitting. So they put in these big subs in those rooms. Um, the other thing was that uh, under $1,000, looking at subwoofers for people who are going out and playing live, there's not a lot that's very good. Um, and there's plenty that hits hard, but doesn't get low at all. So we were already going to make a sub that can hit this SPL target and hit uh, this frequency response target um, that's appropriate for 5.1 use in, in a studio. That's also just getting in the door for people who are going out and gigging with like a JBL Eon 1 or a Bose L1, one of those stick PAs or Mackie Thumps or Yamaha DRX, whatever it is, a smaller PA system. And a lot of those people live in apartments. A lot of those people don't have access to a pickup truck, which I know it sounds silly, but how the hell else are you going to get a sub anywhere? Yeah. So uh, we had this opportunity to say, look, we've got a sub that does the studio thing exactly the way we needed to do it. If we make that also a PA subwoofer, which just means beef up the sidewalls, make them out of plywood instead of MDF, put handles on it, make sure that it's painted so that if it gets dragged in a parking lot, it doesn't ruin it put a steel grill on the front. Mm -hmm. um, that's a live supplement now. And so, yeah, I, I've been really pleasantly surprised with the reaction of that sub. Um, the people who are buying it in studios, the people who are buying full systems, both for surround sound and now for uh, immersive sound with, with Dolby Atmos and saying, hey, what sub should I use? Like, well, we happen to have a sub and they're like, great, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that jumped out at me when I was looking at it was it's very variable. And I didn't realize it was also intended for live sound as well as, as you know, an extension, base extension for standard monitors. But because it's so variable and there are a lot of switches on it, the setup, and we all know setup for subwoofer is very touchy. If you don't get it right, you might as well not even have one. So how do you deal with that? Yeah. So this is sort of an ongoing question, especially, like you said, with the subwoofer. The, the first generation of WS-12s have a certain setup. The next generation, which the only real difference is that the, the, the setup options change a little bit, um, will be coming out soon. And then we've got other subwoofers in development. Like you said, there's you got to do it right or you might as well not do it at all. Um, and I wanted to make sure that the options were present for people who don't have a degree in acoustics to get it right. I think, I think I might've overcomplicated things with the options that we presented. And I think we, in trying to solve some problems specifically, you know, somebody with my level of expertise doesn't know how to set up a subwoofer in a room and how to get it at, right, at the right level to match the, the full range monitors. We tried to solve that problem and I think we didn't <laughs> um, and not just didn't solve the problem. I think the solution that we presented made things more confusing. And that's something that we've sought to remedy in the next generation of it, where rather than say, hey, just flip this switch and it's going to be right. We've eliminated that switch and instead given the user some more options. But it does, on the one hand, it puts more onus on the user to figure out how to do it correctly. But on the other hand, it doesn't give someone a false sense of confidence that they, hey, I hit all the right buttons, it should be right. There's no, there's no way to do that with the subwoofer. That having been said, one of the other things we spent a bit of time doing is in showing people, uh, in demonstrating and 
creating content that shows people how to get loudspeakers and subwoofers in the right place in the room, and then how to calibrate those uh, devices, speakers, or subwoofers so that they can get it right. Um, because in general, you put a loudspeaker or a subwoofer, specifically a subwoofer in a room, you're going to have problems. Um, you're going to have room modes to deal with. You've got to be able to get the loudspeaker in the right place. And, you know, then, you know, if you can, if you can do it and put EQ to tune the room or to calibrate the loudspeaker, that's a good thing to do. So we've spent the time or we've spent a good amount of time in trying to train users how to do that with videos that are available. Back in the 5.1 days when it was first getting started in the 90s, I did a lot of 5.1 mixing. And as a result, a lot of consulting on 5.1 rooms, which meant calibrating them as well. And JBL actually made that easy after a while where it was just kind of one switch and it would do it. But, you know, I was sitting there at the SPL meter and going around and the subwoofer, I'd inevitably go into a room and the subwoofer was calibrated so it was exactly the same level as the monitors. And of course, that <laughs> wouldn't work at all. It'd be way, way off. Yes. No, it has to be calibrated for plus 10 dB. The yeah. point one channel has to be calibrated for plus one 10 dB. But, you know, even even having the ability to tune them, uh, if you put the loudspeaker in, or the subwoofer in the wrong place and you have a cancellation in your listening spot, as an example, no matter how much EQ you put in, you'll never get that signal at that frequency that's that's sucked out by a room cancellation back. So yeah, it's a big deal. And now, of course, now nowadays people have the ability to download a, a an software that is free freely available called Room EQ Wizard and get a inexpensive uh, calibrated mic and measure their system unambiguously and know exactly what's going on in their room. It's a lot easier than, you know, playing uh, frequency bursts and holding an SPL meter to try to do that. Yeah, I've been there. I've, I've done that. I went from that, I then I walked around with six microphone stands with six microphones. And yep. Wow. <laughs> it's so much easier now. Uh, let me start by saying one of the biggest problems for those that want to get into immersive audio and Atmos and just instead of mixing on headphones they want to put a studio in has been the cost. And there's still a little bit of that involved in terms of uh, there's some maybe construction that you have to do that people aren't used to. But that being said, then the other part of the cost was actually all the loudspeakers that you needed. And one of the things I noticed, I was pleasantly surprised, is the fact that your speakers are made to be hung, made to be put on a wall if you want this is brilliant. This solves at least a big part of that problem. Yeah. Actually, I, Nate spent a bit of time working on the mounting options, so I'll let you... Uh... Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, you know, before Atmos kind of snuck up on us, and we we had ideas of how we wanted to enter the market, and then uh, Jeff Greenberg at the Village called and said, can you do Atmos? We said, yes. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, <laughs> uh, and um, we feel really honored to have a system up in Studio F Village. We've got a system in East West. We've got other systems in some other high-profile locations. Uh, but it meant like, oh crap, we gotta we gotta figure out a mounting solution. And we had a mounting solution early on, and we we had a mounting solution for the LP6. We had sold something like twenty thousand LP6s and seven mounts. 
so we said, we don't need this. This is this is adding complexity and warehouse space and all this stuff. We don't need to do this. So I said, let's nix it. And I think that week is when um, Steam started picking up uh, for Atmos. So all of our systems going forward will have the opportunity to add a wall mount. For the time being, if you want to wall or ceiling mount something, we have a specific SKU, which is the IN5-C that's got that bracket on it. Uh, it fits pipe flange right out of the box. Um, so you can go to Home Depot and buy some pipe flange and spray paint it black and you'll have a nice looking system. Um, if you want something a little bit more customizable and a little bit nicer looking um, with some light modification, you can make it work with uh, Triad Orbit mounts. Which then brings me to the Bluetooth module. I'm not sure exactly where that, where that's going. Is there two of them, first of all? It looked like there was one that was for connecting your iPhone, and there was another one that was to the speaker, which I thought, okay, there's a Bluetooth, there must be a Bluetooth transmitter then that's transmitting to the receiver. No, there's just there's just the one module, which is the MVPT. And that really came out of something I had wished for in my days of demoing loudspeakers twice a week. You're demoing professional system, and somebody inevitably says, hey, can you play the song off my phone? Ah. And the answer is no, absolutely not. Don't even ask. But it shouldn't be. Uh, and so, um, especially, you know, I've got an iPhone, whatever, um, that doesn't have a headphone jack. Headphone jacks have gone away. It's a real pain in the ass. And I know that for a lot of people, the collaborative process in the studio is, hey, listen to this beat. Let's listen to this thing on Spotify. Listen to this. Listen to this. It's a lot of back and forth. And everybody's got their media on their phones. That's not necessarily a professional mixing environment, but the opportunity to play the same media through the same system and not just hear it from a crappy phone speaker, but to hear it going through the system is huge. And there was nothing on the market to get from Bluetooth into the professional audio connectors just didn't exist. Um, and so that was just an easy, like this should exist. Somebody needs to make this we have the bandwidth to do this as a project. Let's do it. Is it Bluetooth 2.0? I believe it is 4. Point something, 4.2 or more. It's got the optics. Okay. Yeah, the specific thing, huh. there are some other Bluetooth converters on the market. Um, they don't use uh, particularly high um, uh, codecs. And so blue, not all Bluetooth, obviously, is created equal. And so there is an opportunity to use Aptex or Aptex HD. Um, Aptex uh, is not the highest resolution Bluetooth available, but it is very low latency mm -hmm. um, compared to Aptex HD. So there is that, you know, do we do lower resolution and minimal latency or we do super high resolution, but a lot of latency? I thought that uh, the low latency was more appropriate. So that's why I went with Aptex. So that's CD quality. If from an Android phone, and then if you're using an iPhone, it just defaults to AAC. Okay, that makes sense. See, I thought that what this was for was you can have wireless speakers. No, no. Um, the the specific use case was literally just so many people saying, "Hey, I want to play you this thing off my phone, in a studio or a DJ setup or whatever it is," and just no good solution to take your phone and hit play and have it come through the speakers. Although that would be a good product. If you can convert whatever speaker you have, whatever powered speaker into a wireless system, I bet there'd be people that would buy it. Now, the, again, we have the, pro the power cord, though. We have the problem of, yeah, yeah, right. There are multiple 
problems in this. But nonetheless, there's a market for that, I think. Something to look out for. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to touch on? I, I will shamelessly plug that you mentioned calibration, and that is a service that we offer. Um, if you are looking at uh, getting a Cali Atmos system or a smaller format, um, you should get in touch with us about uh, our calibration services. We are developing the workflow for that so that we can get in and out and it's easy and we don't leave a mess. So as we're doing that, we're offering half off. So it's a it's a once in a lifetime opportunity. Yeah. You can't afford not to. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, that's my shameless plug. And other than that, I have two shameless plugs. I'm going to plug again. We are doing an Atmos brunch the Sunday after NAM. So if you're coming to the NAM show or you live in Los Angeles, we are offering uh, a bus from Anaheim. If you're at the NAM show, it's going to be at the village. There's going to be a panel of Atmos mixers and mastering engineers and uh, recording engineers talking about their workflow, talking about uh, what they think of the format, talking about where they see things going. Um, we're also probably going to have some representatives from Dolby uh, speaking to some of those things as well. That's going to be hosted by uh, Warren Hewitt. We're going to have Atmos demos, at least in Studio F and maybe in one other studio in the village um, that is putting up an Atmos room. And then Charles is going to be demonstrating um, the moving microphone method that he uses for system tuning, yeah. which uh, once you've got the system down, um, you can tune a speaker and well, you can measure a speaker in about three minutes. Um, and that's taking several measurements to make sure the first one was right. I like that. So if you're interested in that, go to caliaudio.com slash Atmos Brunch to register. And um, if you're in Anaheim, we're busing from Anaheim, and we will bus you to LAX if you're from out of town. That being said, what's the best piece of business advice that maybe you learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? Charles, let's start with you. I think kind of having the skin in the game of being our own company helps you to focus a lot more um and to to drive on i think you learn how important the the totality of the business you know before working in corporate it's like i'm you know my head's in engineering i'm i'm thinking only about engineering um and i'm not thinking about many things that are happening outside how the product is marketed how it's sold you know and of course those things aren't my wheelhouse but you learn when you're in this environment that all this stuff matters and it, it kind of helps you to have an understanding of your teammates a little bit more than you would in a corporate environment. It's kind of the, the big thing that I, I've picked up. Yeah, that makes sense. Nate, how about you? The Boy Scout that I am, do the right thing and tell the truth. Uh -huh. uh, because not doing so will always end up being more work <laughs> and <laughs> making you look worse. <laughs> um, and, you know, sometimes it's really easy to be like, oh, this is the right thing to do. We're going to do it. And sometimes we are, we are tempted to go through a, uh, a path with more immediate benefit. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's the right, doing the right thing. And it's not, you know, do the right thing out of some, obviously there's, there's ethical implications, but doing the right thing for your customers for your end users, the people who use the product you make will always pay off. Maybe it won't pay off tomorrow. Maybe it'll be harder over the next 36 hours or week or whatever, but doing that will always pay dividends. You can find out more about Cali Audio at caliaudio.com. 
That's K-A-L-I-A-U-D-I-O, KaliAudio.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at BobbyOsensky.com. There you'll also find out about the openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's BobbyOsensky.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, where you can find an Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. 